I am Corey Shockey, the Deputy Director General of the IISS, and have the pleasure of being the host of Sound Strategic, our podcast designed to showcase the wealth of analytic talent here at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. And I could not be happier that I have the pleasure today of talking with one of our sparkliest young analysts, Maya Nguyens. She is the China military expert in our defense and military analysis team, the folks who do the military balance. She was educated at Macquarie University in Canada, did her graduate work at the University of Leiden and at Oxford. She has lived in a in an astonishing array of places, we'll get to that later, uh, speaks Mandarin fluently, has done some extraordinarily interesting work on Chinese private security companies operating outside the country, and also uh, is trying to wrestle to the ground how to accurately capture China's defense spending, has done some terrific work with Lucy Burrow-Sudro, a defense economist here, looking at the Chinese defense industry and how it ranks relative to uh, Western companies. And we are going to get into all of those things today. Maya, thanks for coming to have this conversation. Hi, Corey. Thank you. So my first question, as you know, we have a common set of questions we always ask everyone. And the first one seems... Uh, luridly commonplace to ask you, uh, since all of your work is headline-worthy these days, but what about your work is in the news just now? I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Nothing about China is in the news. I really had to struggle with this topic. Um, So one thing that I wanted to talk about today was China's pursuit of emerging technology. So there's a lot in the news right now about Chinese investments in 5G and ICT infrastructure around the world and what the implications of that are for international security. But I think really the general public will think of Chinese military modernization in terms of big new ships and shiny planes and pointy missiles. And there's really this whole other side to things, um, to Chinese military modernization. And that is its pursuit of technologies um, and leadership in technological innovation in areas that it thinks will be um, imperative to winning wars in the future. And here I'm talking about AI and space and things that none of us understand, like quantum computing. Um, <laughs> but, but really, China has a goal here for 2030 to become a world leader. And you know, a lot of the discussions that are happening today are about Chinese competition with the US. But some research that I've done actually talks about Um, how Europe is perhaps losing this battle as well. So talking a little bit about how China doesn't really, isn't really on this road on its own. I loved the way in your presentation at the Munich Security Conference, you described the EU as being at risk of becoming the piggy bank for China's AI development. Tell me a little bit more about that. Absolutely. So um, China has a couple of strategies to become a superpower in these new emerging technologies. And a lot of that is about protecting its domestic industry and its domestic markets for Chinese companies. 
Um, a lot of it also has to do with integrating its innovation, research, and development with other uh, actors in the world. So countries like the U.S. have been really good on clamping down and uh, restricting investments from China in really sensitive technological areas. Now, what the European Union hasn't done is exactly that. Because of the supranational um, regulation not necessarily matching up with member state national regulations and frameworks, we really have a leaky bucket situation in the European Union where Chinese companies are able to legally uh, invest in European innovation and take some of that knowledge and skill back to China. Uh, so one of the questions that bedevils me as I look at a rising China and try to understand um, its strategic importance is that a lot of people talk about President Xi and the Chinese leadership as being brilliant strategists with a hundred-year timeline. And yet, if I were playing their hand, um, it seems to me an enormous mistake to have activated the antibodies against their continued success. And what I believe I see, uh, especially across the innovation space right now, is the renationalization of high tech industries, of supply chains, of intellectual. Um, capital, that all of the concerns about how China has so aggressively stolen intellectual capital from Western companies. I notice in the U.S. right now, there's, for the first time, there's nobody arguing for preserving a positive economic engagement with China. Business isn't doing it. Trade groups aren't doing it. Government's not doing it. How do you explain this choice on their part? Why would they do this now? Uh, really simple is that I don't think that they're a brilliant strategists in that sense. And one thing that I really, really, really disagree with is that China can think a hundred years into the future. Mm-hmm. It cannot. Um, and uh, and this is true for this space as well. At the moment, um, we have to understand that China is a massive, massive organism that operates at very, very different levels and many different fields at the same time. And I just don't think they banked on anybody really picking up on things like this, um, Mm -hmm. especially in the European Union. So whilst the U.S. is able to, I guess, um, whilst the antibodies are are more easily activated than the United States, uh, Europe is kind of late to the game simply because China is able to, one, I think, um, divide European member states uh, between Mm -hmm. each other really, really well. It plays that game very well. Um, And second of all, in Europe, we've had a really um, strong focus on engagement with China for a long time. And I think there's been a lot of wishful thinking on the part of Europeans that, you know, we're we're also wonderful. We love our our values and our norms and everyone around the world will eventually turn out to be like us. And I think we're kind of hitting a wall on that. And there's a little bit more realism uh, when it comes to China. Yeah, yeah. So how did you get interested in this line of work? How did you come to be a China expert? How did you come to be a China military expert? I know you've worked in trade in Taipei. What focused you on on developing the expertise on the Chinese military? So two things. I am Dutch, but I did not grow up in the Netherlands. I grew up in uh, seven countries with my parents and lived in seven more uh, simply because of my parents' work. But my dad is also a military vet, so he is a veteran, and we grew up with uh, security and military topics being discussed at the dinner table, which is not always very Dutch. But um, (laughs) I graduated high school in Taiwan, 
And before that, I had lived in East Africa for five years, wow. which was the longest I'd ever lived in a place, and that was Tanzania. And I remember huh. as a teenager going to Taiwan and just seeing how absolutely different it was and discovering East Asia and being so fascinated with how um, this island had developed so quickly and then going to university and understanding or learning more and learning to understand how East Asia had developed over time. And then, you know, then getting into the security questions of, well, um, actually, there are a lot of historical antagonisms that still play out in East Asia, and yet mm -hmm. they are still developing, and they're still a, it's still a relatively stable uh, um, region at that time. Um, of course, it's a little different now. But that, that kind of got the ball rolling, and then I went on to university at Leiden after studying in Australia, and um, focused again in East Asia, at which point I realized I should probably learn Chinese uh, to further my career and went to Oxford to do that and then went to Beijing. And really, my work experiences have always had this geostrategic element to it, whether it was trade or security focused. Mm. Um, and my last play placement for the European Union working in uh, Taiwan at their, well, it's called an economic, um, economic and trade office, but it's the European Union's formal representation to, to Taiwan. Um, and there I looked at policy, so everything from regional uh, politics and security questions across strait relations, and ended up here in the perfect <laughs> culmination of my career thus far. It's really true. I wish I had a picture of you uh, from a few months ago looking at pictures of Chinese ships <laughs> with the first Sea Lord and the American Chief of Naval Operations uh, because you and they were looming over this picture <laughs> and the three of you were pointing and discussing. It was so delightful to be part of that experience and to see you holding your intellectual and analytic own with them. And it was fun. It really was. <laughs> so I want to talk about your favorite book in your field. What, what do you think people should read to get an understanding of the work that you do? So that I found a really tough question just because there is this wealth of literature on China and just about everyone in the world has an opinion. Um, so I was thinking about, you know, works like Henry Kissinger's on China or um, Ezra Vogel's work on Deng Xiaoping, which is about 700 pages long if you want to <laughs> learn about Deng Xiaoping in every fashion. Um, but the book that I read last has kind of stuck with me the most, and that is Philip Ball's The Water Kingdom. And I think oh, I was I haven't reading read that book uh, whilst <laughs> we were flying back from somewhere. Um, but it talks about how water is politically, um, culturally, philosophically connected to the mm. way Chinese think and operate. And I found that actually a really, really interesting book. So it starts with how China, how Chinese uh, language features water. So if you think mm. about the words for above or below or before and next or before and after, that is shang and xia. Now that actually has to do with water because huh. that talks about how water flows from the top of a mountain at the top to the bottom of oh, a river. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, and it's the same with time. So there's been a lot of great work on how time and water are connected. So in the West, we say time is money, but in China, they say time is water. Oh, that's really interesting. So there are so many different and really interesting stories that come out of this. And being Dutch, the management of water has been key to my country's uh, <laughs> development, but it's also been that to China as well. And one story that really stuck out to me was um, 
the fact that in 19, what was it, 1966, at the age of 72, Mao Zedong swam in the Yangtze River. And that wasn't just to show off that he could swim apparently 15 kilometers in 90 minutes or something <laughs> absolutely unbelievable like that. But it was actually for him a metaphor to show that you can overcome really great challenges. And mm. he linked that back to China overcoming challenges with the United States. How interesting. Um, and he chose water as that metaphor. So this book has a lot of great anecdotes, just a really great way to tell the story of China in a way that I hadn't seen before. Oh, that sounds great. And it inspires me to recall that my one of my favorite reflections on fate and fortune uh, comes from Lao Tzu and the Tao Te Ching, that we only drown in a strong current if we struggle against it excellent. instead of letting it carry us where we are intended to go. That is excellent. <laughs> yeah. Like Mao in the Yangtze River. <laughs> exactly right. Okay, next question. What is the conventional wisdom in your field that you think is wrong? So how long is this podcast? Because <laughs> there are there are things to to, to choose from here. Um, I think at the end of the day, the biggest misconception that people have on China um, is that it's a black and white country. And mm. what I always like to remind people is that it's a hugely complex country, and not just big geographically, but also just in terms of scale and the challenges that it faces. And this really comes back then to the question of whether China is a flexible actor or not. And the biggest misconception that I think there is is that China is inflexible because it's an author authoritarian government. Uh, the CCP is an authoritarian government. Um, and um, domestic public opinion doesn't matter. Because of censorship, it doesn't exist. And I think anybody that says that just really doesn't understand China at all. Domestic public opinion does matter to Xi Jinping and to the CCP because the greatest threat to China is not the United States, it's the Chinese people. Mm -hmm. And when they are content, discontent, they've got a problem as a one-party state. They need to deliver on their promises, and if they don't get there, um, and if people become unhappy, that is a huge problem. And that is not only in the general public, but that also accounts for Xi Jinping's military. So the party, the People's Liberation Army is uh, the Chinese military. It is the military of the party. It needs to follow, follow the, party's, um, the party's line and the, the party's goal. Um, but there is a misconception that this military is all gung-ho, is all content with Xi Jinping's reforms, or is entirely discontent with Xi Jinping's reforms because he has reformed the party and mm -hmm. the, the military. And that, I think, is, is untrue as well. Um, you know, that's really interesting. And not only um, is it intellectually interesting, it has important policy implications that we get that wrong. Namely, that we uh, will choose tools that in which one size fits all. We will miss opportunities to engage with those elements of Chinese society that can be um, agitated or persuaded of different policies. I, too, think that people assume that the Chinese government, because it's authoritarian, uh, takes no, can, can afford to be indifferent to public attitudes. And what, what makes me, as a liberal, hopeful about China eventually, eventually becoming a government deserving of the Chinese people's support is that now, whenever there are natural disasters, 
the Chinese leadership rushes to hug babies and carry sandbags, which means that at some fundamental level, they have acknowledged their accountability to the public. Mm. And so we are no longer negotiating the outcome. We're negotiating the price. <laughs> Absolutely. And we can take it bigger than that as well. It affects Chinese international relations. So China wants to be uh, a stakeholder in the Arctic and how the Arctic is governed, not only because it has security and trade implications, but also because global warming and warming of the, the polar ice caps has meant that there's a lot more smog that travels to Beijing, or rather stays in Beijing, because the Arctic winds in the winter have weakened. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't made that connection. And people in Beijing are incredibly vocal about smog and um, mm. air pollution and their quality of life. So it actually has um, pushed the Chinese government to say, you know what, we're in your Arctic state as well, and we want to have a say. Interesting. Okay, What's, what do you like best of work you have done? But if you were going to direct people towards one area of your work they should go to, um, what is it that you're proudest of? That is a really hard question. Um, <laughs> Only because for you it's such a crowded category. Uh, okay. I actually think the dual-use one is really, the dual-use research I've done is really, really timely. Um, the other thing that I really enjoyed doing was speaking at the first Sea Lords Conference uh, I think there's a recording of it online somewhere, but that's really um, that was an opportunity for me as a civilian and as not a purely naval expert to stand on stage and tell a room full of 300 Navy experts and officers um, that what China is doing with its maritime capabilities is not really rocket science and it's not a black box that we can't understand. Fabulous. Thank you for that. And my last question, because we are an institute that produces as well as analyzes data, I always try and pull out for everyone, what is the data visualization that you like best, the one that sings to you? So I actually brought it with me because I'm not sure whether you've seen it yet, but mm -hmm. I chose a Chinese data visualization. And Good it's Lord. a mind map. Um, and you correctly say, good Lord, because it is supposed to clarify what Xi Jinping thought on socialism for uh, with Chinese characteristics for new era means. And in fact, it has just confused everyone. Um, so this infographic came out about a year after Xi's speech at the 19th Party Congress. And it was written up very kindly by the people at the People's Daily. Um, so it is a mass of about 30 different priorities with branches and sub-branches and even further, further sub-branches. But uh, what it does show <laughs> is that actually maybe we don't have this prioritization quite right in what we understand she's priorities to be. Because number one is all about understanding the party and the party's loyalty to mm -hmm. this grand new idea of the Chinese dream and um, the importance of understanding Xi Jinping thought. Uh, number 13 is economic reform. Oh, I'm number, surprised it's that far down. Number 24 out of 30 is military reform. And all the way, if I get it right, number 27 out of 30 is Belt and Road Initiative. Huh. So I'm not quite sure whether these are ranked in terms of priority, but certainly somebody thought that number 24 should be the military and not number two. Yeah, that is really interesting. Um, for... Uh, so we will post the visualization with this audio so people can see this alarming uh, circulatory system 
graph. For our American listeners, if you have ever seen the graph, uh, the graph of uh, influence networks in Iraq, it's just about as complicated as that. <laughs> Maya Nunes, thank you so much for giving us an education, for helping us think about how China, um, how we misperceive a unitary China that is either all one thing or all another and need to adopt a more sophisticated approach, not just because it will help us better understand China, but also because it will open up a wider range of political tools for managing this rising China. Thank you so much for talking with me today and also for the stellar work you do for the <laughs> Double I Double S. Thanks, Corey.